Good morning, everybody. Um, lovely to see you here. Um, question to begin with, uh, and that is, when was the last time you received or gave a love letter? Um, perhaps you've been re in receipt of one this week. I don't know. That would be exciting. Uh, if, if it's been a bit longer, I wonder if you can remember the kinds of things that were written in it or that you wrote. Um, don't share them with us now. Beth and I have been together, uh, Beth, my wife, have been, and I have been together for 21 years. We've been married for 18 years. And I think we have written some nice things to each other in that time. And in fact, I think I know we've got a box of cards somewhere that we could embarrass our children with um, at some point in the future. Um, however, I want to tell you this morning about um, another form of love letter uh, or love communication that I received from Beth, which was about two years into our relationship, so 19 years ago. To be more accurate, we were not only two years into our relationship, but actually we were one week into our breakup. Um, and we'd broken up because I had panicked. We were both quite young. I'd panicked that I wasn't ready for marriage. And so I thought the honourable thing to do was to split up with her and, you know, have done. And frankly, I was a mess. <laughs> um, I had been serving on a children's holiday camp and I kept having to run out of meetings because I was bursting into tears. Um, which I would like to say, I would like to say is not typical of me though, I think increasingly it is. Um, it was really bad and it was the first time that I'd experienced this kind of mess. And um, uh, anyway, Beth had told me at the moment that I'd broken up with her a week before that if this was the case, that I, we were to cut off all contact that I was not allowed to be in contact with her whatsoever. Um, and so I was, with some trepidation, I, after a week of, of crying at the camp, I sent a message to her, a text message, saying, wondering if we could meet up. And uh, she replied in terms which I think could be described as robust. Um, and her, her love letter or text um, was made it crystal clear that, that I could not just waltz back into her life. Uh, there was to be no physical contact, and there was much to be explained on my part. <laughs> and essentially, her communication made clear that I would need to change significantly. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that that, that exchange, that form of love communication, worked, because one month later we were engaged, and a year later we were married. Um, so there we are. Um, I share that with you, not just to embarrass me and Beth, um, but to suggest to you this morning that love letters or loving communication is not always roses and sonnets, but sometimes, in fact, perhaps often, hard words, hard things. Sometimes love requires robust communication for the good of the other. So I've called this sermon this morning, which is on that last of the seven letters in Revelation, um, I've called it the love letter you didn't know you needed. Um, a love letter you didn't know you needed. We're going to focus on the seventh letter, uh, which is in Revelation chapter 3, and it's to the church or the assembly or the gathering in Laodicea. Um, but before we get on to it, I want to, I want to just set the scene by filling you in on what these letters are in general. What are we talking about when people talk about the seven letters to the churches? Let me just tell you a little bit about them before we then look at, at that one in that seventh one properly. So, an executive summary of the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. The letters are from 
the risen and glorified Jesus, the one that we saw the vision of last week in Revelation chapter 1, this glorious picture of Jesus. And it is, it is actual Jesus who is speaking these actual words to actual people in actual churches. So they're all from him. Just pause there for a second, by the way. So these seven letters are from Jesus, the risen Jesus. As I was preparing this this week, I did pause, and I invite you to do so now, and think, if the risen Jesus were to write a letter now to our church, what would he say? What would he say? Um, maybe you can tell me afterwards what you think he would say. So they're from Jesus. They're to these seven little churches in, in Asia Minor. The towns that are mentioned are, are mainly unfamiliar to us, but they are actual places that existed in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And that was very much in the Roman Empire, an empire built on the cult of the emperor, which meant that religion and politics and life were not kind of separate, but all together. Which meant that there was huge pressure, both financial and reputational, and even life and death pressure, for these Christians to conform to the empire and to worship of Caesar, to give money and worship to Caesar. Um, the pressure to conform was unbelievable. So all the letters follow this pattern. Um, if you read through them, you will see these features. They all say, um, to you, church in X, in X town, from me, Jesus, King of Kings. And he usually uses one phrase from that description to kind of back up his credentials. So in ours, actually, he borrows from later in Revelation and says, the Amen, the good and faithful. Then he says, this is going well, this isn't, now do that. So there's a commendation, a complaint, and a command. And you see that in nearly all seven letters. And then he says, anyone who hears this, you can tune in too. You should listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So though each letter is written to a church, he wants all churches, which I take it includes us, to listen in and to see what the Spirit is saying to us. So these are particular but universal. And then finally he says, remember, if you keep going to the end... There is so much to look forward to. He says, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, I promise a seat next to me in, in glory. So that's the rough pattern in all seven, and the details, as you'd expect, are different according to the situation of the individual church. Here is just one comment in passing before we get onto this one letter. It seems to me as I was reading chapters two and three and these seven letters, here, I encourage you to read them this week if you haven't recently. What we tend to judge churches on is at best irrelevant and at worst wrong when we compare it to what Jesus values about church. Um, so it's striking, for example, that in chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, he says, I know your poverty, yet you are rich in all the ways that matter. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says to Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And he says in 3.17, in the letter we'll be looking at to the Laodiceans, he says, you say you are rich, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So what I take from that is that the way we often view and value churches, size, wealth, strength, liveliness, that does not always align with what Jesus values. Weakness, dependence, faithfulness, patient endurance. And it's vital, therefore, that we today listen 
to the Spirit here in the words of Jesus so that we know what it is that he values and what he would have us be as a church. So let's get into the actual text for today then. Revelation 3, 14 to 22, the letter to the Laodiceans, a love letter you didn't know you needed. I wish I still had the texts or the kind of um, recordings of conversations between Beth and me, mainly focusing on Beth. Um, as I was trying to patch things up, because I imagine if I were to revisit those words, they would still today feel quite brutal. Um, There's no waggling on the T, kind of nice things, you know, you're really nice, but it was just straight into knocking me into the rough. Um, fully deserved. And he goes, Jesus takes a similar tactic here with the Laodicean. So actually, I just told you that the seven letters have that thing of, of, of a commendation, a complaint, and a command. No commendation to the Laodiceans. There's no niceties at the beginning, straight into the complaint, into the rebuke. And he says to them, this is the rebuke, I know your deeds. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit or I'm going to vomit you. I'm going to emit you out of my mouth. So he starts straight in with the problem. Then we get the solution and then we'll see the motivation. So first, what is the problem with these Laodiceans? The problem, put simply, is the lack of fruit in their lives. That seems to be the thrust of this lukewarm business. And I think perhaps it's, it's often slightly misinterpreted, this bit. We, we read it in English and we go, oh, you're neither hot nor cold, uh, uh, um, you're just lukewarm. I wish you were one or the other. And we think, oh, what he's saying is be zealous or be anti, but don't be in between. And that's not a bad thing to say to someone in terms of, you know, let's have some zeal. That's a good application. I don't actually think that's what he's saying here. I think what he's saying is lukewarm water is no good for anything. That is not what it's supposed to be. So hot water, great. We can have, you know, it's healing. It's got, you can have therapy in hot water. It's, it's good for washing. Cold water, great. It's refreshing. You can drink it. It's pleasant. Lukewarm water tastes disgusting. It's no good. It's, it's not doing what it's meant to do. So I think that is the picture. That is the rebuke is your lives as Christians are not what they should be. They're not what they should be. So Jesus prizes, you can see here, the church and the person whose faith is lived out in obedience to Jesus and in patient endurance even through suffering. Lukewarm is no good. And so actually, it's a really visceral image, isn't it? Jesus basically is saying, when I think about your church, because of that, I feel sick. I, I want to spit you out. That's not, that's not kind words. Here is the key for us then, because it's all well and good going, well, that was the problem with the Laodiceans, naughty Laodiceans. The key for us is, how did they get to a place where their lives weren't matching their faith? Because I take it that's possible for us as well. And I would say the key is in verse 17, where Jesus says, You say, I am rich and have acquired wealth. I do not require a thing. You do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Um, apparently, Laodicea was a center for banking in the ancient world, and it attracted great wealth. It had recently, in, in 61, in AD 61, there'd been a, earth, a, a shattering earthquake and it had proudly, because of its wealth, it had proudly said to the empire, we don't need state help to rebuild the town. 
We are Laodicea. We have plenty of money, thank you. We can do this ourselves. Ourselves. We don't need your help. So what was true materially of Laodicea seems to have leached into their spiritual lives. Can you see what's going on there? Um, and it leads to a blindness. It's not very good when we don't see things properly. I learned this last night. I was at a friend's house, and I, we, were sitting, we were eating outside. I took the water jug to go and refill it in the kitchen, um, and I, I, I walked band slap into a glass door <laughs> because I didn't see it. I, th- I thought it was open, and I, I walked quite briskly into a door, and I have a bruise on my nose and my knee. Um, it's not good when you don't see things properly. And this is the problem. This, this wealth is affecting the way that the Laodiceans are seeing things, and it is is devastating. Wealth gives us the wrong glasses, if you like, to see the world. Their material prosperity infects their spiritual understanding, and so they begin to live out, actually, what Jesus has said. Do you remember the words of Jesus when he was on earth, when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? And they're beginning to to live that out, tragically. Um, why is that the case? I want to suggest to you that it is, this is, I've made this up, this is not Jesus' phrase, wealth goggles. You've, you've heard of beer goggles perhaps? This is wealth goggles and it's much more serious. Um, the Laodiceans are blind to the reality of their spiritual situation. And it's easy to see how it happens. So when you are protected from the harder edges, harder edges of life because of material success, it's easy, perhaps, to slip into unthinking, kind of, a sense of superiority. And it's not that we really believe that to be the case, or we'd ever articulate it. But, I don't know, you hear a, you hear a talk about Jesus, and you hear that he comes for the, the poor and the needy and the sinner. And you think that's true, and you immediately think of someone else that needs that message. Another person that needs to, to hear that, because they're particularly sinful or particularly needy. And you wouldn't think that's me. Do you see what I mean? Um, Or in a different way, what we value. Well, we begin to value the size of our congregation or the speed of our fundraising or the competence of our people. And And we value that, of course, because that is the currency of our culture, size, wealth, and competence. And so as we look at Laodicea, perhaps we could imagine that Laodicea was the largest of the seven churches. We don't know. It was certainly the wealthiest of the seven churches. And so they understandably begin to kind of go, well, you know, we're doing something right. You know, we must be doing something right. The Lord's blessing us. I am rich. I've required wealth. I do not require a thing. It's wealth goggles. They are economically rich and spiritually poor. It's easy to slide into viewing the world and the church, crucially, completely the opposite way to how Jesus views it. The Jesus, remember, who says to the church in Smyrna, I know your poverty, yet you are rich in all the ways that matter. Who says to the Philadelphians, I know you have little strength. You feel weak, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. That is wealth in the eyes of Jesus. A pitiful little church who clings on. And let's be clear... Jesus is talking to the church in Laodicea. He's not talking to the town generally. He's talking to the Christians. So these guys believe the right things, presumably. They believe the right things. But they, this is, I think, quite significant. They unsay with their lives what they say in the creed on Sunday. 
So the problem is unfruitful lives. The cause of that problem is their wealth and their pride. What is the solution? And this is the wonderful bit, the most, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, perhaps. Um, made famous in part, you know that famous painting, Holman Hunt, The Light of the World, with Jesus standing at that door. Verse 19, second half of it. Jesus says, Be earnest and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. It's an amazing invitation. And it's an incredible solution. And the solution, put simply, is repentance. He says, be earnest and repent. So he says to this wayward church, it's not too late. It's never too late. Repentance isn't a one-time offer. In fact, the life of faith in Jesus, I think we can learn here, is continual daily repentance. Be earnest. Literally, it means be hot and repent. That is, turn away from this spirit of self-reliance, he says to the Laodiceans. Take off your wealth goggles and you will see me. Unblock your ears from the sounds of the world and you'll hear me knocking. I never left. I'm always here, waiting for you to hear and open the door again. And the result of genuine repentance is genuine intimacy and friendship with Jesus. That's that picture of him coming in and eating with that person who opens the door. It's a picture of deep friendship. And I, and I think and I hope this morning for you that these verses, that verse 19, is hope to all churches and to all individuals. So you might, might be someone, you know, and I might be tempted to agree, they don't quote me on it, um, you know, I said the Church of England's gone to the dogs. Well, Jesus is knocking. You might think that you personally have messed up beyond hope. Well, Jesus is knocking. You might remember the church of your youth and you look at the church now in despair. Well, Jesus is knocking. And it's interesting as well that though these letters are addressed to the churches, to groups of people, these words of Jesus in verse 19 inviting us to repent, are in the singular. It's for you, each individual person. This is an invitation to you, to me. And maybe hearing those words of Jesus to you, maybe that is why you've come to church this morning. You've come, you didn't know it, but you do now, to hear the voice of Jesus say, be earnest and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone, any one person, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. It's a lovely solution and, and invitation. Just in passing, before we move on to my last little point, notice what repentance involves. And you see it in verse 18. It's a bit more than believing in Jesus, a bit more than assenting to some truth. This is, this is key. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. So what he does there, you see the three things, gold, clothes, and the salve? They're like little emblems, symbols of their wealth and their pride. And he says, you've got to let go of those things 
and find them in me. That's what repentance involves. So gold refined in the fire. He says, you might have physical gold, but are you willing to suffer by my name? And so discover lasting gold, real gold, spiritual. White clothes. We think, well, why does he sell white clothes? Well, the Laodiceans apparently were famous for a trade in black wool. There have been lots of dark clothes in Laodicea, and it was part of their wealth. And he says, don't wear black clothes. I want you to wear white clothes, pure and holy, different from those around you. Let go of what it is that you have pride in. And the salve, well, apparently 13 miles from Laodicea, there was a famous medical center. Again, a source of pride for this area. And he says, oh, you've got lots of ointments. Well, put the salve of the gospel so you can actually see. Put my salve on your eyes and see things how I see them. Can you see how repentance involves turning from the things that keep us from God? And Jesus is very specific to them. If you've sensed Jesus knocking this morning, inviting you to repent and to rediscover deep friendship with him, consider what it is that you need to turn from. What do you need to let go of? Could be very specific. Final thing then, um, what is the motivation for this hard-hitting letter? And I think it's vital we grasp this as we finish, because otherwise we might come out a bit bruised. So, verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. This is a love letter. This, uh, you know, um, Beth told me straight how it was. This is Jesus telling the Laodicean straight how it is. It was loving of Beth because our future relationship depended on it. It's loving of Jesus because their future spiritual life depends on it. Their, their entire future depends on it. Jesus says, verse 21, to those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. And that future depends on what they do now. So to be, to be victorious, according to Jesus, is to keep owning the name of Jesus all your life. Whatever gets thrown at you. It's a thousand small steps in the right direction. It's a million little decisions. It's a way of living which seeks to do things and to see things his way, even though it's not popular or it's uncomfortable. So as I close... Holy Trinity Coombe Down, or if you're, from a, if you're visiting from another church, you can place your own church name in this. Holy Trinity Coombe Down, Jesus loves you as his church. He stands among us by his spirit even now. And he wants us to be aware of the danger of wealth and to see ourselves and our church the way he does, to value what he values. And he wants us to keep on keeping on, even if it means life is going to get harder for us individually or as a church. And he may be calling you personally to repent and to let go of what is blinding you at the moment. And he promises when we do that genuine friendship now and a glorious future forever.